to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be continuing on in our series on the book of Romans. So let's turn over to Romans chapter 8 verses 5 to 17. And then something we've been doing for a while and we may or may not continue, but we want to make sure that whenever we gather together that what is preeminent is God and his word and that his word rules and is authoritative for our life and for our church. So one of the ways we express that, um, if you're new to that idea, is that we stand for the reading of scripture. So I'll go ahead and stand together and let's read God's holy, inspired, and errant word, because that's the only thing in errant you will hear this morning, is, is his word. So let's read his word together. Romans 8, verses 5 through 17. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is God's holy word. You may be seated. Let's pray. God, thank you for giving us the gift of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, that you did not save us to leave us alone. You saved us to call us to yourself, and then you've adopted us, you've made us your children, and you've given us your spirit, not temporarily, but full-time. You've indwelt us with your spirit. You've made us alive by your spirit. You've given us the gift of your indwelling Holy Spirit. And and Lord, as we've come to you for all those here who've placed their faith in you, you've given us the baptism of your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you would enable us to, to look to you, to rely on you, Holy Spirit, to not forget the great benefit of the Holy Spirit that you've given to us so that you might make us righteous in you. God, I pray for all of us that you would awaken our minds, Lord. Our, our minds are tempted to go other places. Father, I pray that we would take any thought captive that comes against your word, Lord, and I pray that we would submit to your word. I pray this morning we would dedicate ourselves to worshiping you as your word is preached. And Father, I pray that you would enable me to preach your words and God, every word that is not from you, I pray, would fall to the ground. But Lord, what is from you, Lord, I pray, would take heart and take root and grow. God, we do all this in worship of you. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, there is a fictional character who many people follow and who my children are just learning to enjoy and learning to get to like. And they've seen a couple stories about this fictional character named Peter Parker. Peter Parker, he was orphaned as a young child. His parents, the story goes, crashed in a flight. He was raised by his Uncle Ben and Aunt May. His aunt and uncle were a lot older than his parents, and so they struggled. They didn't really have to relate to him. They couldn't help him with some of his rough ed- edges. And so he, he tends to be a little socially awkward, a little unrelatable, a little geeky. And that that's gives hope for all of us who are a little geeky. And by age 15, this little socially awkward boy, he goes to this, this public science exhibit. And so the story goes, this arachnid that's been struck by this special particle laser. Yeah, you check your mind at the door already. Um, This arachnid bites him, and this radioactive creature infuses him with his DNA, and, and it begins to change him because the DNA of the spider is changed, and this DNA gets injected somehow into the man, the boy, and he begins to change. And he exhibits all kinds of strange behaviors and he he begins to notice that he's got superhuman strength and he's got strength that's proportionate to a a spider and he's got agility and all kinds of abilities and it changes his life. He can cling to most any surface. He has this kind of subconscious ability to sense things around him and in his environment and, and he calls that spidey senses. I know I'm boring all of you, but hey, this is for all of us. This was in 1962 when Stan Lee came out with this, so I think everybody at least knows who Spider-Man is. And, and why he's attractive, this fictional character, why so many people back in the 60s and today still are enamored with this story is because He takes a really unrelatable, awkward, geeky kid and he's transformed at his very nature. And he becomes different, more powerful, more able. And we love those kinds of stories. But that story really, it pales in comparison to the true story of what the Bible's talking about. It's not talking about giving us superhuman physical strength, but scripture talks about having the very spirit of God make us alive, giving us his new life. Now, not the physical DNA of God, but metaphorically, it's, it's, the, it's the new, brand new life of God has been given to us, and it transforms us in every way. When you become a believer, you might notice that you begin to want to please God, where before you really only wanted to please yourself. And you, you begin to notice that, that you desire the things of God. You want to read the Bible, where before you might have found it boring, or you, you want to be around God's people, where before you just thought they were all a bunch of nerds. And... The Bible begins to affect you and God's word sinks into your heart and you notice this change. And this change comes about by the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Not by a bite, but as you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you. And the Apostle Paul, in the 8th chapter of Romans, he talks about the indwelling Holy Spirit, the transformational nature of the Holy Spirit, more than any other chapter of the entire Bible. You know, you think Romans is all a treatise on theology, and the reality is, is Romans is a wonderful story of of how God makes the unrighteous righteous, not just historically, but how he continues to actually make us righteous by his spirit. And that's what we see in Romans 8, is by the new life we have in the spirit. This it doesn't we're still the same physical person, but he infuses us. He he gives us a new life in him, and that new life is transformative. It changes everything about you. 
so that you could no longer say that you're in the flesh, but now you are in the Spirit. And, and, and Paul, he mentions the Holy Spirit 20 times in this one chapter, more than any other chapter in the New Testament. And what he wants us to see is how we walk how we walk by the Spirit. What does it look like to actually live out the righteousness that he's given us? He says that the righteous requirements of the law have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ on our behalf, but he actually saved us so that not only we'd be declared righteous, but so that we might actively fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Not to earn favor, but so that we're able now to do before what we could never do. And he enables us by his spirit. And so what we're going to see in this chapter is that, that God enables us to live righteously, not on our own ability, but by his spirit. So it's, it's, we're, we're indwelt with a new man. We have something new inside of us, if you will. No, not physiologically, but he's given us a new nature, a new heart, new desires. He's, he's given us his very spirit. And so the main idea is that God enables us to live righteously by giving us a mind by giving us a spirit giving us a mindset that's new by giving us a new mindset a new life and a new obligation he, that's what we see in these verses and the, the first part we're going to see is in is in verses 5 through 8 there is that he gives us a new mindset and we see the contrast between life in the flesh and the new mindset of the spirit and then he also gives us a new life and we see that in in verses 9 to 11 the new life of the Spirit that he gives to us. And then, in verses 12 and 13, he explains that this entitles, entails a new obligation. A new obligation so that we can live righteously. I want you to look down your Bibles just for a moment. Look down your Bibles in Romans 8. And look back one verse. If you notice, this, this verse 5, what we started with, it says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds... On the things of the Spirit. That's verse 5. But what is that 4 looking back to? You know, it's really easy with the Apostle Paul because he has so many 4s that you can lose track of what he's referring to. He said, for this, and for this, and for this, and for this, and for this. And so he says, for the mind, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Well, what's he referring to? What's he referring to there? Well, look down your Bible. It's just one verse earlier. One verse earlier. He says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, what? Not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For, what's that for referring to? Oh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And, and here's how it happens. Not by setting the mind on the flesh, but by setting our mind on the things of the Spirit. Are you tracking? Paul can be a little difficult to follow at times. Remember in verses 1 through 4, I think we have that for you on the overheads of the first part of it. Our assurance where Paul began this is right after chapter 7 when it talks about the struggle that's in all of us. We have a struggle. We want to do what's right, but we find evil lies close at hand. The very good thing we want to do, we find we don't do. And the very thing we don't want to do is what we keep on doing. And so you can have a temptation to feel condemned. And how do I live this life? And I should, but I just as well give up, right? You ever felt that way? This life, I, I, just, I just end up doing the things I don't want to do. I feel I'm condemned. I feel guilty. I feel like I can't do this on my own. Who's going to deliver me? And then Paul begins, Romans chapter 8 says, 
there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he explains what happens. He says, for the law of what? The law of the spirit of life. And then now in these verses, he's going to go on to explain this law of the spirit of life that's already set us free. And before we begin our chapter, even our our section, even we have to understand that our ability to live righteous lives is founded on the fact that the law of the spirit of life has already set us free. So there's no condemnation because God has done what what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his very own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and he's already condemned sin in the flesh is what it tells us. And he did this in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And then now Paul moves on in verses five through eight and following explaining how is this actively worked out. How is this righteous requirement of the law actively worked out by this new life of the Spirit? Are we tracking so far? You can say okay. You can say it loud. That's okay. You know, we should be more interactive here, I think. You know, little amens, little shout it out once in a while. It'd be great. Uh, it'll, it'll help me preach better. So um, one of the first things you see that the Holy Spirit does is that he gives us a new mindset. He gives us a, very, a new mindset, a new way of thinking. Before you were a believer, you wanted to go your own way. All of your desires were ultimately motivated by self-gain in some way, self-fulfillment in some way. Even people who do really good things, ultimately, if they're apart from God, want to do those good things because they, they make them feel good or they have a sense of worth or they have a sense of fulfillment or, or they have a sense of peace or um, a sense of satisfaction. And so all of those even good desires that you do when you're in the flesh really are not for God, but they are against God. But the Spirit, he gives us a new mindset, a mindset that, that lives, wants to live for God. And that's what we see in verses 8. The first thing that we see is how does God enable us to live righteously? How does he enable us to live this new life in the spirit? He does it first and foremost, not only by setting aside our condemnation, giving us new life, he gives us a new mindset. But how, how can you tell the difference between somebody who is in the flesh and somebody who's in the spirit? You know, you can look at a at a wonderful painting, and for me, if I go to a gallery, I wouldn't have any clue the difference between a Vermeer and a knockoff. But someone who's really skilled, someone who understands, somebody who, who gets the details and understands the background and brush strokes and, and technique and, and all the things that go into making a painting, they would be able to tell because they could understand what goes behind that. The only way to be able to tell whether you are of the flesh or of the spirit is where your mind is set. You might not be able to tell on the outside. You could take a person and you might be sitting here and be of the flesh but look really good and look really religious. You can appear very religious on the outside. You can look good. You can look just like the real thing. You can look like people who who are living for God and demonstrating the fruits of the spirit and you can be doing all kinds of good stuff. But your mind, your mindset, your motivation, and by the way, that mindset, set your minds, is setting your motivations, your desires, your your heart's intents. Your heart's intents, if you're in the flesh, are not for God, but they're to please yourself. And he goes on to explain this difference. This is, there's a, it's it's either or, there's there's parallels here in in verse five. Those who live according to the flesh do what? Set their minds on the things of the flesh, 
That's how you tell. It's not externalities. This is not um, legalism. This is not about what you do on the outside necessarily, although what we do is fruit of what we desire. And then the contrast is, but for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. He's giving two different characteristics of each. And, and the Holy Spirit, instead of making, giving us a mind of flesh, he gives us a new mindset. You know, think about what the, some of the motivations of the flesh are, setting your mind on things of the flesh. What does it mean to set your mind on the things of the flesh? What does it mean to set your mind on the things of the Spirit? Well, you know, we can often think mystically, ooh, I'm going to start thinking of the Spirit. And that's really not what the Apostle Paul is talking about. He's already kind of laid out what the things of the Spirit are, and he's going to continue to lay out what the things of the Spirit are. But he, he, he's also laid out some of the mindset or motivation of the flesh. Living as if this world is all there is. Living for our own honor, he talks about in, in Romans 1 and 2. Living for our own pleasures, our own desires. You know, living as if this world is all there is, it, it leads to living for the here and now. Thinking that happiness depends on finances will lead you to be stingy or will lead you to try to climb the corporate ladder or maybe even cheat on taxes or do things that really will not give you happiness, but you're living according to the flesh. You're going to follow after those things. It's going to lead you in the wrong direction. Living according to the flesh could look like thinking that your happiness, your contentment depends on your feelings, and so you're, you're going to be tempted, if you're living according to the flesh, to manipulate, to try to get people to like you so that you feel their love. You're going to be tempted to do things, even good things, for other people because you get a sense of satisfaction when they return those feelings to you. Conversely, when, when you do nice things for people, when you serve people, when you care for people, and they don't give you affection in return, it's going to lead to more sin and more bad behavior. Some other things, some other ways that we can have a mind set on the flesh when you think that your happiness depends on what others think about you. you know, it, it might lead you to try to be better than everybody else. It might lead you to where, I, where it did me when I was a, a young adult teenager and um, I, I would try to crack jokes all the time. I would, I would bring beer to all the parties. I would, I would do things that would make people, I thought, try, make people like me and think I was cool or funny or make me fit in. And, and that was leading to death. That's a mindset on the flesh. Maybe... You try to earn prestige or position because you think if, if, if a lot of people think well of you, then, then you've arrived or that's when you can be content. Where do you set your minds? Do you think that your happiness depends on accumulating power and so you're gonna try to be in a position where you control the people, tell the people what to do, where do you set your minds? Paul talks about this contrast between the mindset on the flesh and the mindset on the spirit. Where do you set your minds? We need to evaluate that with, with the Apostle Paul encouraging us here, giving us a contrast, is so that we can confront ourselves and, and if, if we're not in Christ, to place our faith in him and have our minds set on the spirit. But you know what? Even people who are believers who God's given us a new mind. We need to say, okay, wait a minute. Sometimes we can be tempted to go back and set our minds on the things of the flesh as if that gives us something. But in Romans 7, Paul said, those things just lead to death. 
So where's your mind? And what do I mean by that? What, what do you think about when you have a choice? What are your deepest desires? What are your interests? What do you want when you're all alone? What are your ambitions? What you set your mind on, what you think of, what you value, what your ambitions are, it, it really reveals what you seek as your ultimate good. If you're always thinking about the next buck you can make, or if you're always thinking about the relationship difficulties that you have, if you're always thinking about all these other areas, it might look like your mind is set on the flesh. There's an example of a a guy named William Carey, and just before he was going to go overseas on his mission, he was about to quit his lucrative job, and he was sharing with his employer the reason, who, who was an unbeliever, he was sharing with his unbelieving employer the reasons for why he wanted to go and carry out missions, and he was explaining that Um, In this mission he was going to, he would have hardships and he'd have to give up things. He might not have a home and um, he doesn't have a definite source of income and he's probably going to encounter times when there's no food and he's going to encounter sickness and difficulty and his employer looks at him and says, you are crazy to give all of this up. And effectively, William Carey's answer was, I'm not crazy to give up what... Christ gave up to give me life. And so William Carey, he goes on the mission field because he was looking for eternal rewards. He was setting his mind on the things of the Spirit. Now the results of of setting your mind on things of the Spirit and setting your mind on the flesh, Paul gives us in in verse six, he says, to set the mind on the flesh is what? It's death. It, It not only is death In the end, if you continue to, if you go your own way, setting your mind on your own motivations, your own desires, the the fleshly, the Adam nature, um, it results in death. But not only that, all the things that pertain up to it, it results in, in dying in this life as well. It results in this, in these experience of death, if you will. The mindset of the flesh is death. He says, but to set the mind on the spirit, in contrast, is what? Is life? and peace. Don't you want life and peace? Not the the kind of life that you manufacture, but life given to you by the Spirit, and peace, the peace of God that surpasses, that's greater than any understanding that you have that keeps your heart and it keeps your mind. Well, it begins, the Apostle Paul, with this contrast between setting our mind on the flesh and setting our mind on the things of the Spirit, To set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. You know, if if there is a difficulty in life, there are two ways to respond. You can respond to that difficulty based on the things of the flesh. Maybe there's a relational challenge that you've had as we, we heard from the encouragement this morning. And if you are more aware of your rights and your desires and what you feel like you deserve, that's going to lead to death in that relationship. It's going to lead to all kinds of bad fruit. But if instead you are aware of the things of the Spirit in that relationship, you're going to be aware of the fact that you've been forgiven and that it's not because of any merit of your own. And you've been forgiven a debt that's unpayable 
And because of this unpayable debt, you then want to show others the same mercy you've received so it can transform them like you've been transformed. That's going to change your relationship. That's going to lead to life and peace in the relationship. And then he goes on in verse 7. He says, for the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. What he's talking about here in verse 7 is a mind that continues to be set on the flesh that does not set itself on the spirit. Ultimately, it ends, if, a flesh, if the mind is set on the flesh, it is hostile to God. It can't submit to God. What he's talking about is prior to being given new life, prior to being made alive, you cannot submit to God's law willingly. You, you cannot Love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. You can't love your neighbor as yourself if your mind is set on the flesh. It doesn't submit to God's law. It's not able to. It has no power to submit. He goes on in verse 8. He says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The flesh doesn't have an ability to please God. And that's the reason why in, in Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, the apostle Paul explains the good news of the gospel that transforms us, that gives us new life. Because on our own, apart from him and the new life that we receive, we have no ability to please God. So as a believer, though, we can learn from that as well. Don't return again acting as if you can please God on your own. That's what life in the spirit looks like. Setting your mind on the things the spirit looks like. Remembering, I, that, that place only results in death. I, I was not able to submit to God on my own. I could not conform to God's law on my own. But because he's given me his spirit, I can rely on him. And he will enable me to submit to him. He will enable me to love him and to please him. Because I already am pleasing to God, I can live a life that's pleasing to God. You know, the mind set on the flesh not only is hostile to God, it says it doesn't submit to God's law and it can't. You know, the person who tries to live a legalistic lifestyle because that's how they were raised in uh, maybe a good Christian home. And they've, they've mistakenly thought that it's all about my external behavior and it's all about what I do. Eventually, that's going to lead to not only frustration, but bitterness and resentment and coldness. And eventually, you're going to walk away from the Lord. Unless your motivation is by the Spirit remembering that we can't attain any righteousness of our own, but we have a righteousness outside of us that's been given to us. And so because of that, he's gonna enable us to live by his grace lives that reflect his righteousness. You know, even Christians, we can be focused on our own fleshly desires, the desires of the old man. And that's, that's what Paul has told us about in Romans 7. Now he's explaining that's what's going on. And, and the way to walk out that righteous life, the way to walk in response to the fact that there's no condemnation, is to walk by the Spirit. If our thinking, our desires, our ambitions conflict with God and His Spirit, the question for us is who, who will you submit to? And that, that's a battle that's going on all the time. And so Paul's explaining here, here's how you actively walk out the righteousness of Christ. It's by submitting your mind to the things of the Spirit. The things the Spirit desires. The things the Spirit tells us that are true in God's Word. 
And if you find that you're, you're not able to do that, ask yourself if you've really been born again. The flesh cannot submit. We need the new life of Jesus. And if we have the new life of Jesus, he, he'll enable us to, to submit our minds to the Spirit. Now, not perfectly. We're always going to mess up. But do you have a desire to submit to God? That's an evidence of whether or not your mind is set on the Spirit. Do I desire, you know what, Lord, in my heart, as much as I can know it, God, I, I really want to please you. I'm just struggling doing it, Lord. Would you help me remember the things of your Spirit that your Spirit brings to mind from your Word the things that your spirit came to do and would you give me this experience of new life in the spirit, Lord, enable me to set my mind on you. And then the second principle we see here in verses nine to 11 that Paul gives us of of how do we live righteously, that God has already made us righteous, how do we actually live out the righteousness of God in the Christian walk And, and he gives us this ability by the spirit, not only a new mindset, but the spirit gives us new life. We can see that in verses 9 to 11. The Spirit gives us new life. He gives us a new desire. We walk according to the Spirit, relying on his new life. The Holy Spirit has come, and we are in him, and he is in us. You know, it it is early summer. I guess it's still technically spring and there are bird's nests all around our yard. There's one right above a light that we have in the front of our house and, and that, that bird has made his home. And, and I'm trying to figure out how to graciously get rid of it. But the bird has made his home in our house. He's nested there. He's living there. But the, the word here for the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling in us, it's, it's like he's made his home in us. Not externally, but somehow, God in his infinite wisdom, he actually comes to dwell in us, to give us his motivation by his spirit. His very Holy Spirit comes and dwells with us and in us. It's not a mood, it's not a state of mind. It's the characteristic of a believer that they are in the spirit. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, if you trust in in his sacrifice so that there is now no condemnation for you, then you can be sure of something. You can be sure of something that is true for you no matter how you feel. You have new life in the Spirit. Let that sink in for a minute. You have the very Holy Spirit of God living in you, enabling you. That's meant to give us endless faith. Not in ourselves, but faith in him. Look in verse nine, please. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Your relationship with the Holy Spirit is so closely intertwined that not only is he in you, but you are in him. You can't tell where one begins and where the other one ends. He says, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, then you are in him. He says, anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. But look in verse 10, he says, but if Christ is in you, did you notice he changed, changed the word he uses? Spirit, if Christ is in you? It's really synonymous. What he's saying is it's the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The same Spirit that indwelt Christ enables it so that it's as if Christ is in you because the Holy Spirit is in you. So he said, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead, what does he mean? He doesn't mean that we've already died. But a body is counted as dead because of sin, because of sin that came in that corrupted our human nature. The body is, is basically dead because of sin. 
Now, I, I feel that the older I get. I feel that my body is dead and dying. Um, how many people can relate to that? You feel like, okay, my body is dead. It's, just, it's dying because of sin. But he says, he says something that's beautiful. He says, not only the Holy Spirit dwells in you, if you have the Holy Spirit, you also have another guarantee. You have the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of, that even though your, your mortal, your physical body is dead because of sin, he says the Spirit is life because of righteousness. There's a contrast between the body and the Spirit. Now, why does he tell us that? Well, well, first of all, he says the Spirit's life because of righteousness, because we've been made righteous, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell and give us new life. But you know, and I know, that our body still dies. But what he says is if you have this living Spirit inside of you, in verse 11 he tells us that if this Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, Here's the wonderful truth. He's giving you new life in the spirit and you dwell in him and he dwells in you. And if even though your body is basically dead because of sin, here's the wonderful truth. You have the spirit of life because he's made you righteous. You've received the spirit of life. Now in verse 11, look down your Bible. It says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, this life, here's the promise. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to what? You can say it aloud to your what? Your mortal bodies. Boy, that's good news. Not, this, this life is not all there is. And I know that even though my body might die, it's one day, because I have the Spirit and the assurance of the Spirit, one day I know because I have new life in Him, my body will have life too. What a wonderful promise that is for all of us who have aches and pains and ailments. And we know that our body will die but one day he will also give life to our bodies because we have the spirit who dwells in us. The same spirit that dwelt in Jesus Christ when Jesus' physical body died on the cross, was buried. That same spirit raised his physical, his mortal body to life. That promise is for you. If the spirit dwells in you, he will raise your physical body to life as well. Not only will he give you life in the here and now and impart the life of the Spirit to enable you to live like Jesus, but he'll also make your bodies brand new one day. You know, he told Nicodemus, he says, you must be born again. Now, what happens when we're born again is that now our physical body doesn't die and we become a baby again. That's, that's nonsense. That's reincarnation. That's not the truth. But to be born again means that our, our very nature has to be recreated. Our nature has to die and be recreated. That's what happens when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's been talking about the last few chapters of Romans. And so our nature, our desires have to die, be counted as dead in Jesus Christ, and given new desires, a new heart, and new life. And so what happens on the inside is eventually going to be reflected on the outside. Our physical bodies will die, but he's going to raise us to new life. And that's good news if we have his indwelling spirit is that no matter how you feel, not only physically, but no matter how you feel, if you're wrestling with a, a weak conscience or maybe you're wrestling with assurance, if you have the Holy Spirit, you have the life of the Spirit and he is your guarantee. He's the guarantee not only for this life, but for the life to come as well. 
If we don't have life in the spirit, nothing in this life will last. What are you living for? Whose life are you relying on? Whose life do you have? Does the Holy Spirit dwell within you? If so, you have new life. I was reading a story about how a guy named Dr. Dobson, James Dobson, he, he was visiting Graceland. It's, for those who don't know, who are under 30, in case you're wondering what Graceland is, it's this place, this house that used to be big, um, that's considered big, that a, a famous guy named Elvis, uh, Elvis Presley, he, um, he built this really gaudy home, and he called it Graceland, and he, he died back in the 70s. But Dr. Dobson, he visited this, this home and he described his feelings when he was going around visiting. He says, I was, I was so struck by the utter insignificance of the stuff that Elvis left behind. It led me to ask, so what? So what if there are hundreds of tarnished gold and platinum records hanging side by side in the mansion? So what if RCA gave Elvis a trophy nine feet high? It's a little overkill, don't you think, by the way, but... They designated him as the greatest entertainer of all time. So what if he received letters from the world celebrities that were praising him? So what if he had his photograph taken with presidents and and Queen Elizabeth? So what? It's all wood, hay, and stubble now. He goes on to write, it's equally true in my own life. So what if I leave a similar legacy to those who come after me? Who cares in the end? What difference does it make if trophies hang on the wall of my last home or if powerful, influential people knew me? It's of no consequence even worth mentioning if we don't have life in the Spirit. It doesn't matter. If your mind is set on the things of the flesh, you don't have life in the Spirit, you don't belong to Him, and you will die. What are you living for? Whose life are you relying on? The life that the Spirit gives can never be taken away. Can never be taken away. Well, look in, the, in verses 12 and 13. He gives us another um, ability, another, another truth here for how do you live out the righteous Christian life? How do you live in response to who he's called you to be, who he's made you to be? Well, he, he tells us about a new obligation. The Holy Spirit just not only gives us a new mindset, the Holy Spirit gives us a new life, but the Holy Spirit gives us a new obligation. Now, the ESV, if you have an ESV, you might be reading, it says debt or debtor. That's not the most helpful because for us, when we think you're debtors, we think of a home loan or a mortgage or something like that. We're debtors. Oh, no. But he talks about an obligation. I, I love how the New American Standard Bible, who's more of a word-for-word translation, or even the NIV or the, and the New Living Translation put it, we have an obligation now listen for a moment. Look up here. The, the, the New Living Translation, I love the way it puts it. It's helpful for me. It says, so, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation whatsoever to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. That's good news, right? You have no obligation whatsoever to actually do the things that your body and your flesh tell you you must do. And it says, goes on, for if you keep on following it, you will perish. But if through the power of the Holy Spirit you turn from it and its evil deeds, you will live. You will experience life in this life, the life of the Spirit, as you don't give in to the obligations of flesh, but instead give yourself over to the loving obligation of the Spirit. Now, for me, it was helpful to think through things because when I think of an obligation, I think of something bad often. I think of a debt. I think of a, 
I don't like debt. I hate being in debt. The only debt I have right now is my house, but I'm aware that it's going to take me 30 years, whatever, or 27 years now to pay it back. I've got this debt looming over me. That's not a, that's not a pleasant feeling. That's not what he's talking about when he says we, we don't have an obligation to flesh. That's duty. That's the law. We, we do have an obligation to the Spirit, but if by the Spirit. That's the contrast there. But what kind of debt or obligation is that? For me, it's helpful to think in terms of, of my marriage. I, I love my wife. I, I enjoy doing things for her, and I don't do things as, for her as often as I should. But I, when I want to do things to please my wife, to, for my wife's enjoyment, to, for the good of my wife, I don't do them just because I should. If I did that, that wouldn't be very loving of me if I said, honey, I'm taking you out tonight because it's our anniversary and I have to. I don't, I don't think she would, I don't think she would experience a lot of affection and love there. You know, um, we're going to go to a restaurant that I know is your favorite that I don't really want to go to, but because it's your favorite, we'll go. It's our anniversary. That, that's, that's a duty. That's awful. But, but if you love your wife because, boy, you, you, love, you love being around her. You see God at work in her. You or your spouse, if you're a woman, you see that in your husband. And it, and it makes you want to do nice things for them because of your affection for them. Contrast that with, you know, maybe I get pulled over and I get a speeding ticket. I have an obligation, a debt to pay that. There's no joy in that. That's the law. But now I have an obligation in a good sense. If I displease my wife or I do something that offends or hurts her, it's, it's not because I'm going to get a ticket or I'm going to pay a fine or even because I'm worried about the consequences of how she'll treat me. It's because I, I don't want to treat somebody I love that way. When I'm impatient, when I'm harsh, when I sin against my wife. I, I want to, I because I hurt her, I want to I wanna love her. Is that kind of obligation because of she's a wonderful wife, that she is godly, she cares for me, she loves me, she does all kinds of things for me as well. And I have an obligation that's because of my affection and love for her that's actually in light of who she is. And that's kind of the contrast we see here. We have an obligation to the, not to the flesh anymore to, to pay our duties, but we have an obligation to the Spirit. But it's not an obligation because the Holy Spirit says, you must or I'm going to hammer you. It's no, it's saying, I've given you new life. I've given you a new mind. Jesus came and he sacrificed for you. He's given you everything. You've been set free. There's no condemnation. Even when you mess up, I'm not going to be angry even when you do things that are against my nature, I'm not going to punish you. I might discipline you for your good to help you learn and grow and not experience those effects of setting your mind on things of the flesh. But, but you want to please God because of who he is and what he's done for you and what he's doing in you. And so it's that kind of, of obligation of gratitude I love there's an old song, I'm actually not too old, but there's an old song that got rewritten. It's called A Debtor to Mercy Alone. And, and I, I share the lyrics with you. It says, A debtor to mercy alone, of covenant mercy I sing. This is the kind of obligation, the debt that this passage is talking about. A debtor to mercy alone, 
of covenant mercy I sing. I come with your righteousness on my humble offering to bring. The judgments of your holy law with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. This is the kind of obligation we have. And you can go to the next verse. The work which your goodness began, the arm of your strength, it will complete. The promise is yes and amen and never was forfeited yet. The future are things that are now. No power below or above can make you your purpose for go or sever my soul from your love. This is the kind of obligation that we have. This wonderful obligation. This joyful obligation. Verse 3 goes on. It says, my name from the palms of your hands, eternity will not erase Impressed by your, on your heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. I to the end will endure until I bow down at your throne forever and always secure. A debtor, one who's obligated joyfully to mercy alone. The mind set on the spirit is keenly aware and motivated by God's grace. And if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What does he mean? He means that when you are tempted, if you remember that by his grace, he does not count your sins against you. If by the Spirit you remember the fact that you have no ability on your own, but he has given you his ability, the same powerful Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you. If you remember his righteousness has been given to you, if you remember that he's adopted you, he's made you his child, that you are secure in him, that, that living by the Spirit, setting your mind on the things of the Spirit, that will enable you to put to death the deeds of the body and you will experience his life. John Owen once asked the question, he says, do you mortify? And, and mortify is a, a, an old-fashioned word, meaning do you put to death? Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. You know, Jesus said something a little more severe. He said, if your eye causes you to sin, now he's not talking about your physical eyes, but if you're desiring something, if your lust of the eyes calls you to sin, do whatever you can to pluck it out. If your eye calls you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot leads you into this path of unrighteousness, cut it off. He gets pretty extreme here. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. Put to death. Put to death the deeds of the body. But how do you do that? You don't do that legalistically. I'm just going to do what's right and good. No, by the Spirit. Setting your mind on the things of the Spirit, relying on the life of the Spirit that he gives. Another quote from Owen, he says, to suppose that whatever God requires of us, that we have power of ourselves to do. So if you think that, that when God requires something, you have power on your own to do it, here's what he says that is. He says, that's to make the cross and grace of Jesus Christ as of none effect. Don't think that you put to death the deeds of the body in the flesh, by the flesh. No, it's by the Spirit. By setting your mind on the things of the Spirit, by relying on the Spirit, by receiving life from the Spirit. And he goes on, set faith at work on Christ for the killing of thy sin. His blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. 
live in this and that will die a conqueror. Yea, that will, through the good providence of God, live to see thy lust dead at thy feet. And then I was going to share a really lengthy quote with you. I won't share it with you, but I'll put it up on our website later. Where he talks about hoping that our hearts that feel like habitations of dragons, that our hearts can be transformed as we trust in him. As we set our minds in the things of the spirit, as we trust in the sufficiency of Christ in God. In Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul says the same kind of thing a little bit differently. In Colossians 3, verses 1 through 5, he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, and and he's kind of summarizing what's happened in Romans 5, 6, and 7. You've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above. Here's how to set your mind on things of the Spirit. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. What's the response? What's the obligation? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. What's remaining? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness with idolatry. What do you need to put to death? What are some of those fleshly desires that you are aware of? What, what are those, how are you been setting your mind on maybe sexual immorality or impurity or passion or evil desire or covetousness or what, and maybe it's idolatry of your worth and, and what people think of you and, and how people view you and your own self-worth can be an idol. What it looks like to set your mind on the things of above is just another way of saying set your mind on the things of the spirit. What do you do when you discover you have sin in your life? Well, first of all, confess it to God, repent, ask forgiveness, and then set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Now, what does that look like? When you are tempted to worry, often, not always, but often it's because you forget the fact that you have a loving Father God who is able to take care of all your worries. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Remember, that God is for you. He's your father and he cares for you. If you're experiencing financial anxiety and maybe you're ripping people off or you're cutting corners or you're robbing Peter to pay Paul or you're shifting things around and you're lying, you're deceiving, you're hiding things from your spouse, um, you might be thinking that if you don't do those things that you won't have enough. That your life depends on your provision. Setting your mind to things of the Spirit means remembering God promises to give us what we need. He, he, he says, look at the lilies of the field. They, they don't sow or reap, and yet he's, he's adorned them in all kinds of beauty. And look at the birds of the air, and they don't, they don't know what's coming next, and God provides for them. How much more will he care for you, O you of little faith? Maybe you get angry when things don't go your way, when you're not in control. Maybe you have an idol of control. And you think that if, deep down, if I'm not in control, then, then, then things are gonna go wrong, the world's gonna fly apart, and my life will be unstable, and there's gonna be trouble. Setting your mind on the things of the Spirit is to say God is in control. He is sovereign. 
He always wants what is best for me because I'm his child. He knows what is best for me and he's able to do that. Or maybe you have set your mind on things to the flesh and you fear having your kingdom taken away from you. Setting your mind on things to the Spirit, remembering he's given us his kingdom and an inheritance that can never be taken away. That's setting your mind on things to the Spirit. When we, when we do that, it enables us to put to death those fleshly desires. Maybe you, you have a fear of man, or, or maybe put it differently, you feel like and you believe and you live like your worth is in what other people think of you. So you were afraid for people to see who you really are or what your house is like or um, just how bad you really are because you tie your worth to what others think of you. And instead, setting your mind to the things of the Spirit would be say, what God has said about me defines me. I have no worth in myself, but he makes me worthy in him. And in him alone do I have all his worth. Maybe you're self-sufficient and you're setting your mind there, thinking if I don't do it, it just won't get done. And that sets your mind on things of the Spirit is to remember that he said, my strength is sufficient for you in weakness. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden with trying to do things on your own. I'm adding that part in Scripture, but come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Maybe your mind is set on the flesh, and you are more aware of how somebody has hurt or offended you and not given you what you deserve, and so you are experiencing bitterness and resentment, and if you have bitterness and resentment, by the way, that's a sign that you have an idol that's not getting fulfilled, not getting met, and what do you do with that? You set your mind on the things of the Spirit, and you remember that what you really deserve is hell. Anything short of hell is a gift from God. What you really deserve is the eternal punishment of God apart from Christ. And so in Christ, he gives you what you would never and can never deserve. He gives you his own righteousness. He gives you forgiveness and grace and mercy and peace. And your happiness does not depend on what other people do to you. What can man do to you now? If God is for you, who can be against you? Mind and the Spirit is aware of your own forgiveness. So much so that you want to extend that forgiveness that's transformed you to other people around you. You want to show mercy and kindness. and Maybe you, you, your mind is set on guilt and unworthiness. And that, that guilt and unworthiness, it can go a few different ways. If you feel guilty and unworthy, it could go to the place where you are despondent and despairing and you're depressed and you're down all the time and that's a horribly sad place to be but often that can become from the place where you are falsely putting your hope in your own ability to not sin or your own ability to be good enough. You need to see that no, you can't be good enough but he was good enough precisely because you could not be. And that's what we glory in. And so when we can't do things, we remember that God does not condemn us for our unworthiness. He, he condemned that unworthiness in Jesus already. And there's therefore now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus, no matter what you feel. 
your guilt and unworthiness, it could drive an overwork as well. Maybe there's people here who, who work too much. And what you tell yourself is, I'm, I'm just doing that because, you know, it's the right thing to do. But you take a sense of satisfaction from work instead of finding satisfaction in who you are in Christ. I go on and on and on. Those are just some, some of the ways that we have our minds on the flesh. And, and how do we put death to deeds of the flesh? We, we set our mind on the spirit. By the Spirit, it's important, though. It's not by sheer effort or legalism. It's crying out to God. Say, God, help me. Help me see what's true, right, and good. Help me rely on you. Holy Spirit, tell me what's true. Give me life. Give me the, the, the new life that you've already given to me. You know, metaphorically speaking, it's kind of like getting in touch with our spidey senses, really. It's, it's remembering that, that when we're tempted we have to be more aware that we have a new life within us. And then it's just a matter of learning to walk in this new life, learning to walk according to the Spirit so that we can experience His new life within us. Set our minds on the things of the Spirit, relying on His life that He gives, motivated by His love, forgiveness, and mercy. That's how we walk according to the Spirit. Amen? Well, let's pray as I pray. Go ahead and the band come up.